to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. We are going to be in chapter um, 4 of 2 Corinthians as we continue our study of this letter from Paul. Um, We are going to um, start with... um, the end of chapter three, it kind of flows all together. And so if you understand the Greek, you know, Paul was not putting in uh, verse numbers and chapter numbers and breaks and things like that, um, or paragraphs in the Greek. And so um, there's sections that kind of flow together. And Paul can have very circular thought at the same time having very linear thought. And so it's kind of a beautiful thing there. Um, As we um, go into this, I'm going to read chapter three, verse 18. And then we're going to read all the way through chapter 4, verse 7. Um, this section um, is, is sometimes just kind of overlooked. Um, it, it's actually one of the areas that, that uh, really brings out some of the, the deepest things about what God has done in saving a people. Some of the deepest um, mysteries of God in this little section here. And then we kind of just read over it quickly. So I hope by the end that you'll remember and from 3.18 and into 4 and into chapter 5 that as we're walking through this, um, that that the Lord would give beautiful light. Um, So let's read chapter four, um, chapter three, 18, and then four through seven, one through seven. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Therefore, so based, of, based off of all that we've seen in chapter 3, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we do come asking for the beautiful, beautiful light of Christ. We come asking for you to open our eyes to see beautiful things Would you come fall on us this morning as as we take little sips? Would you give us depth? Would you let us drink deeply of these truths that Paul writes? These truths flowing from your own heart so that we would be equipped, 
so that we would have greater affections for you, so that you would be glorified. In your name we pray, amen. So like I said, um, this section um, gets kind of deep pretty quickly there in verse 6. Um, in verse 7, uh, that will be starting next week, and so I'll, I'll go into that one. But we have this treasure, and so we're going to see what he means by this treasure, the depth of this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So 3.18 and 4.7, like book bookends, and then um, some beautiful stuff there in, in chapter 4, 1 through 6. In verse 6, we'll spend the majority of our time. The, the four things, just some key points that I want you to see there uh, today is, first of all, just that um, Paul is resolved in his crew. Uh, the resolve through the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We see that in verse 1 there. Um, then secondly, Paul renounces three things and he clings to one thing. Paul renounces clearly three things and he says, um, we're going to cling to one thing. And then third, um, we see Paul showing us that Satan's all-consuming goal is to blind people from an all-consuming Christ. Satan's all-consuming goal is to blind people from an all-consuming Christ. And then the fourth and probably the most important is the distinctive glory of an all-sufficient Jesus. And we'll see that in verses 5 and 6. So um, the distinctive glory of an all-sufficient Jesus. So first of all, just looking in, that, uh, in verses 18 of chapter 3 and then verse 1 of chapter 4, um, we see Paul saying, I, we're resolved for ministry in the new covenant through the mercy of God. Based off of all of that, we do not lose heart. So I would just ask you, just starting out this morning, what is the state of your heart when you come this morning, this week? Beholding Christ or losing heart? That comes in a lot of ways. What is causing you to lose heart? Sometimes we begin to have a lot of things in our mind that are just out there on the table. And sometimes that begins to consume us and, and we're beholding all of that stuff. And sometimes God is not even on the table. So if, you, if that's helpful to you to go hold it, God, here's what I see. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm even thinking way too much about. God, I'm, I'm setting all that stuff off the table. None of that is truth necessarily. I set you on the table as truth. And I'm, I'm trusting that you will help me walk through all of those things. They, they, they may not disappear. They may not go away immediately. This may be something that lasts for three years or 10 years or 20 years that we deal with. It may go away in a month. You may miraculously take care of something, but, but I, I want to look to you. We, we do not lose heart. So I'd ask you, where's your heart at this morning? How can remembering the mercy of God have beautiful effects on you not losing heart. So based off of all of that that we've seen in chapter 3, everything explained there, um, showing the supremacy and the sufficiency of the new covenant, all provided in Christ. And again, going back to see, Paul was, uh, Paul was showing them with Moses, the old covenant was fading. What had glory now has, what he said, no glory at all. 
Um, he even refers to it in some uh, derogatory terms, uh, the ministry of death, talking about the Old Covenant. So that's why we, if we're, if we're uh, thinking about how much do, of the Old Covenant do I have to live by, what rules and, the, and laws in the Old Covenant do I have to live by, Paul said it was a ministry of death because of the glory that was surpassing it, Christ. So that's why Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with that law. You were never going to live up to that law. And that law was bringing death. What the law and keeping that brought you to was to a judgment place standing before the throne of God going, you've broken all the rules. You've broken all of them. You're guilty in all of them. All that you've done only led to breaking the law. So let's remember in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus saying, um, I didn't come to abolish the law. You don't realize it yet. I'm the only one who's lived it out. The righteousness you'll live by in heaven for all eternity, the righteousness you'll, leave, you'll need in being sanctified, it's not in your own works. It's the righteousness imputed to you from my life. And so all of that that come out. So we see that double substitution. Christ taking your wrath for your sins. And also that substitution of Christ's imputed righteousness granted to my account as if I was living perfectly. So here's how that worked. Now, churches don't do a good job about talking about imputed righteousness. So here, here's how this works out. This may help some of you. Um, you t- tomorrow, it's Monday. You're not in church. You may even have the mindset that it's Monday. Man, I'll probably just sins a lot worse. I better have a really good quiet time or you know, it's going to take over. And so remember, that, that's not truth. The truth is the Holy Spirit's with you. So he, he's with you. You're, you're not a, a blank slate. Could sin, maybe not sin. So here comes a temptation. First thing, talking about a coworker. 10 a.m., someone walks in like, oh my gosh, she is a witch. She is, like, you could do that, right? But before that happens, and your coworker walks in and goes, did you hear Nancy today? And, and, and you, right there, temptation, here's the chance. I, I could jump into that. I don't have to. I'm free from sin. Right now, I'm tempted to do that and walk in that path. I don't have to, though. Sin doesn't control me anymore because what we just saying, that, that you're free from that. Imputed righteousness. Hey, Jesus, I really feel like, and oh, gosh, I can't stand Nancy. Oh, I can't stand, none of us can stand Nancy, right? Like we all have Nancy in the, oh, my God, it would feel so good gossiping and just talking about, because it's clear. I mean, Nancy's nuts. Everyone feels it. She treats everyone. It feels so good to talk about Nancy, right? Jesus, you know my heart on this, but I'm not going to join in on this. You love Nancy. I don't. I need to borrow some love towards Nancy right now and keep my mouth shut. Shut. I need to borrow how you kept your mouth shut around every crowd that you're in instead of judging them and gossiping about them and talking bad about them. I need to borrow some righteousness from you. The imputed righteousness. And now it wasn't that I had to jump off into sin and then therefore ask forgiveness and repent. I actually walked in righteousness, not my own, imputed, borrowed righteousness from Christ. And now I see that you gave me grace and righteousness on the front end before I jumped into sin. I experienced you, Jesus. I didn't sin. I was tempted. I chose not to sin. I made a choice to go to you. I didn't gossip. I didn't hate her. And you know what? I actually turned the conversation into Man, yeah, it makes me think about just, you know, what all Nancy's been through. I don't know her story. That makes it awkward, doesn't it? And now, Jesus, 
I worship you because you just showed me how I lived through your righteousness a little bit. And I'm not getting prideful about that. So that's what imputed righteousness does, if that helps you. So if, that's a, if someone's struggling with whatever, your desires. So for me, um, i got seven lights on on my dash. Um, this week, I'm reading this part in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is miserable. Um, church planting's not the most gratify, gratifying things, not the most money-producing thing. Um, and so all these things. And then, like, I literally was reading this stuff, frustrated about some stuff, praying. I get up, and I go turn on um, the dryer to start some clothes, and it does this weird sound like, and it doesn't start like, just like, and so, and it just goes off. So I hit the button again, and then that's when smoke started coming out of it. So I'm freaking out. We've got a, thankfully, we have a fire extinguisher. It's in a box. I don't know how to work it. It has a couple of little things that you've got to take off. And so I'm staying there. The dryer's smoking. I'm going, our house is going to burn down. And I'm going to be standing in the yard with our fire extinguisher, you know, like a little, you know, seven-inch one. And so, and, and like, I don't know if it's electrical fire. So I'm thinking through, do you get shocked if you spray that on there and it makes that connection to you? Do you die um, or, or does it put it out? And so and I go back. And so then I'm just going, oh, there's three or four or $500. And it's two years old. Why not? And so then I'm thinking through, man, we're, we're crushed, all these little things, these things that happen in life. And so my heart tempted to do that and just have to lay that down. So it may be frustrations in life for you. It may be lust after stuff. It may be lust after people. It may be just a desire to whatever. And so imputed righteousness, beautiful from Christ. And we get that. And so Paul says, we don't have to lose heart. Um, If you remember Paul's own conversion in Acts chapter 9. Paul's on the road to Damascus. They're, they're going to imprison and, and kill Christians who are part of the way. That's what it was called early on. And so the, 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 those that gathered, they would imprison them and kill some of them. And so then that's when Jesus comes in the bright light and Paul gets knocked off his horse and he's blinded. Why? Suddenly a light from heaven shone around. I, I wonder if in 2 Corinthians 4, that's when he says, a light has shone transform me, changed me. I wonder if Paul's thinking through his own conversion. Maybe that'd be good for you to think through your own conversion, those first days when a light shone on your heart. And maybe we thought, maybe problems will just go away. And no, problems have come even worse. But a light has shone from heaven around him. And so Paul was constantly aware of always viewing life from this mercy lens. Anyone come in feeling like they could lose heart? If you come in today and through your own battle with sin, maybe, or or through the things you're facing right now in life, that may seem overwhelming and insurmountable. There is a living Jesus that's greater and larger than the mountain or the tragedy that you're facing. Not, Not Christianity, not religious works, not you getting better lists. There is a living person. And what stinks about it is that he's invisible. So when I have issues going on with my kids or, or, or people, and I, and I just think, Jesus, it, it's frustrating because this is so hurtful. This is so betrayal. This is so damaging, and yet you're invisible. So I know I can talk. And so that's just the ongoing tension there of going like, I, I, I believe you're real. I believe that you died on the cross. I believe all these things are true about you. Sometimes I just want you to just change this immediately and you don't seem to work by my plan. 
So you must be wanting to change me and transform me little by little, as we saw last week, through this situation. And it all starts with this mercy lens. So if you're coming in and you've got stuff, whether it's sin or whether it's things that you're facing, there is this living person, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Don't forget that. They're alive. They see what's going on in your life. They see what's hitting your life. It's not over. This Jesus has prevailed. He is renewing all things. So don't lose heart. Gaze and behold at this Jesus. Do not lose heart. By the mercies of God, thinking through the very mercies of God that have encompassed you, do not lose heart. Even though, if we go on to verse 16, he says, Though our outer self is wasting away, your dryer is breaking down, your vehicle is breaking down, your, your toilets are breaking down. Well, I've spent $700 on two toilets last month. Now, three or $400 probably on a dryer that's shiny and brand new. A vehicle, $400 this week. I, I, I just... God, do you see what's happening here? Like, we're just trying to get rid of our house, and it's like starting to like just fall to fall apart as we're going. Like, I just it's it's like hey, those people just like, will you just buy it just like it is, or do we just throw matches at it? And so, um, just going, man, what is going on? So, the renewal of all things. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So do not lose heart. Why did Paul suggest that at the first? Because he knew we were going to have a tendency to lose heart. Paul's thought of as, as the greatest Christian ever. He wrote over uh, half the New Testament. If Paul felt this way, we should expect it. Back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he said, we felt as if life itself was, was ending. We were completely desperate. We were completely weak. We were to the point of losing heart. And now here in chapter 4, twice, he says, do not lose heart because of what this Christ has done. Do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. And he's saying that in context of this beautiful stuff he's going to bring out in verse 6. So the second thing Paul goes into is he renounces three things and he clings to one thing. Now, first of all, he renounces, um, notice what he says there. We have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. So the three things that he renounces is, first, a disgraceful, underhanded ways. These in the Greek is just hidden, shameful things. So hidden, secret stuff that you do that cause guilt and shame. So this applies to both the, just the, the, the Christian life. This applies to all of us as ambassadors for Christ, as ministers of the gospel. So priesthood of all believers. He, he's saying this, this applies to all Christians. But he's also speaking specifically as, as, as some ministers. He's comparing the, those super apostles and those ministers with themselves. And he's saying, we have not done what these super apostles, these impressive ones have done. They've used disgraceful, underhanded ways. So, hidden, shameful things. Um, in Matthew 10, 26, and uh, Luke 12, 2, so this is King James Version, so Matthew 10, 26, it says, Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. So there's nothing that's going on that shall not be revealed. 
In Luke 12, 2, there's nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. So we, we have this secret stuff that's going on. And he says, it, it's going to be brought out into the light one day. You have this secret stuff. Nothing remains hidden. There is nothing that God doesn't see. So, man, is everyone encouraged? Ready to go trick or treat? Let's pray and end this and go get candy. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, this is why you need mercy. If you're a believer, you're trying to live a double life, going through the motions of church while, while trying to maintain secrets and dark things, he says, it's not working out. If you're not a believer, you're not getting away with all your deceitfulness. It's going to be brought forward. We can see quickly why pastors feel like they must get crafty or modify the message of God's Word because it's just convicting in itself. It's a convicting message. The gospel is controversial and convicting. People won't like that. So how are you supposed to be successful in growing a church if you're going to tell people the truth about their hearts? Do you have things that you're hiding? Are there things you're ashamed of? So now, here's two things on that. Is it guilt and shame because of sins that have already been confessed, already been repented of? Things that you've already confessed to the Lord, maybe confessed to other people, you've repented of, and you've sought renewal, and you're still walking in guilt and shame? That's not what this is talking about. But if you are, on the other hand, as a believer, or definitely non-believer, none of it's covered. If you're a believer, if you're continuing participating in sin, and you're going on with sin and on with sin, you should feel guilt and shame. So this whole gospel hyphen um, decade that's been going on of, well, the gospel, it's just the good news. You shouldn't feel shame. There's no condemnation in Christ. There is. If you're choosing to do sins and practicing it, you should feel guilt. You should feel shame. That's not what that's saying. It's saying that if you've been forgiven and you're not choosing to do these sins, that you're still walking around. We have that loop going on in your head, whether it's you're a guilt person or you're a shame person. You shouldn't be doing that if your, your sins are forgiven and, and you're walking in renewal. You don't have to worry about that, that past stuff being brought back up. There's no condemnation. But if you're a believer and you're choosing these things purposefully, and you're being tempted and you just keep on and keep on and keep on, you should feel guilt and shame. That's the Holy Spirit bringing conviction. So don't don't mess those up in this gospel-hyphened decade that we're in. So just know that um, we should be feeling that. That, That's a good gift. And so Paul's saying um, there are things that's going on that are deceptive, that are crafty. And we've had no part of it. Our conscience is clear is what Paul's saying. And then he turns to talk about modifying the message. And Paul now reveals that uh, they refuse um, to do in, in the ministry of the word these things. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. So practicing cunning is craftiness and deception. Literally, uh, the, the Greek means using whatever means necessary to accomplish the goal. Now, if you had been in church leadership boards for the last 20 years, you would see different churches, tons of books, um, and a lot of leadership conferences, whole conferences, millions of dollars spent on this idea of, here's the, here's the key question, what would it take to get people into your building? What would it take to get people into your building? Now, that, that's a 
that we're coming out of the attractional time. We're coming out of the church growth era. Um, so churches that are still asking that, they're like 20 years behind. Um, and so, so that's, it's not a horrible thing to say, what would it take to get these people to come here? If that's the only question you're asking, though, if that's the first and the only question, there's a problem. And, and so because that would lead guys to getting pretty deceptive sometimes. So like, for instance, it might lead a a lot of people to do, what can we do to get this room filled up? And then I'll I'll tell them how good they are. I'll make them feel really, really encouraged. At the end, I'll make everyone stand, close their eyes, bow their head. Now, everyone just repeat this prayer after me. and, And then raise your hand if you just accepted that. Hold it. You didn't tell them about why they needed salvation. You didn't tell them about repentance. You didn't tell them about the glory of God. You didn't tell them about their, their need for forgiveness and mercy. You told them how good they were. You told them how they can go do so much in the name of the Lord. You told them about their God-ordained power. If, you're, if you'll just be more faithful, you're about to see what God's about to do. And, and then also the, the crazy stuff of the prosperity gospel. And then at the end, you just said, hey, repeat this prayer after me. They don't understand that. And so then you had people raise your hand. So do you see how guys get crafty? and deceptive. And so that's practicing cunning. Uh, There's a difference between pastors and shepherds who preach God's word versus motivational speakers and entertainers who um, they want to inspire. Inspire is good. I've been around staff meetings where a couple of media guys said, you know, I just feel like that man from the songs, they're kind of lame and the preaching, people just don't like that stuff, especially if you bring up sin or guilt, like people don't like that. So to keep people in church, we've got to inspire them at the end. So at the end, the last four or five minutes, we should have a, a, a video every week that just makes people feel so inspired. So then they'll make sure they come back next week. So do you see what happened there? Jesus, his word, the Holy Spirit, uh-uh, uh-uh, don't, don't have any power. That, that wouldn't make people want to come back. They don't have the power. We've got to have an inspiring story at the end. I'm not against inspiring stories, but if you say my 98% is the inspiring story and I'm marginalizing Christ and his gospel, there's a problem there. And just know that, that we're in that day and age, right? So remember the old uh, daytime drama interactive, the hyped afternoon talk shows? So uh, you may, you, I think most of you are, some of y'all may be going like, I have no idea who you're talking about. But So it all started with a guy named Jerry Springer. So Jerry Springer, some of you grew up eating a good diet of Jerry Springer. And so he's kind of like the godfather uh, of all the of all the uh, the shows and so i think there's like seven that probably spun out of him um so maury povich ricky lake judge judy arsenio hall all those so today here's what's going on jerry springer and arsenio hall they have congregations jerry springer and arsenio hall have congregations because what christianity in america has turned into is what is trendy and what is hyped I'm not saying that actual Jerry Springer and Arsenio have those. I'm saying there are pastors who are going, I want to be like Jerry Springer, and I want to be Arsenio Hall as a church leader. Do you see what I'm saying? Hype. When a couple of generations and large groups of people ate McDonald's fries for 20 years, it's really nice when the church finally understands that we all want McDonald's fries. Do you get the metaphor? We're consumers on unhealthy product. We're consumers of an unhealthy product. The large masses want to be fed McDonald's fries, an easy message. 
that leaves you feeling really good for a few moments, that's horrible for your soul. And that's what people want. So people are adding to the gospel because it's not attractive enough. It's not attractive. We've got to change Jesus to make Jesus cool and hip. Um, If my goal is producing a certain amount of numbers or metrics, so if you're in certain denominations or certain things, and they're saying, how big's your church? How many baptisms have you had? Um, Even here locally, when they talk about church planting, and there's some groups that would say, um, so like there's some groups that have supported us financially. um, And and so if that church planting network says, thank you, we're going to give you $2,000 a month for three years. That's a lot, right? So 24,000 times three years, that's very helpful in church planting. If they say, here's the only catch, by month four, we need 80 baptisms. Do I turn down the money or do I go and find 80 baptisms? You see the pressure put on pastors and leaders? Horrible. Can I produce baptisms? Well, I can. And I can manipulate. And I get lots of kids to get dunked. But I can't produce salvation, right? So do you see what happens? And so some guys do it because they've got powers outside of them. Jesus isn't attractive enough. We got we to gotta hype this up. Some guys do it because they think that the gospel, they're adding to the gospel because the gospel is not effective enough. They need more attendance. They need more baptisms. Um, they need more messages downloaded. Some guys are basing their, their, um, their own worth. They have this void in here, and, and they're worried about, like they're checking Monday morning, how many times was my sermon downloaded? How many times was my sermon downloaded? We, I think we just started even putting ours up there like five months ago. And so if, if I had been basing my value or my worth before God or people of how impressive this is, we, we've failed miserably. Like people, like people, like the people two doors down, they don't even know we have a church here, right? And so um, on the internet still hasn't heard of us. And so, the, so if, if you're basing your value on that, like, man, it's wrong. And, and guys will do that needing you to be the audience and grow the audience because of their little daddy issues that that daddy didn't tell them they were good enough playing basketball or something. Or they've always felt, you know, had that small man syndrome and they, they now they want to feel big and powerful and they want to produce a crowd. That's not for your soul. That's for themselves. Guys want to add to the gospel because it's not strict enough. Sometimes in our circles, um, you realize that there are many churches that, that they, they just want to add, 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 lists and lists and lists of moral imperatives on your lives. Here's what we want to look like. Here's what we're supposed to look like. This, this. Everyone should look like this. Everyone should look like this. Granted, we want conformity to Christ, but there should be, that's the beauty of diversity, right? So those of you who come here to Metro um, on, um, what was it, Thursday night, we had practice going on, and so I was here before it started. It was a rainy, kind of cold day, and, and, and literally there's like, you know, it, it, they were doing all this stuff. All the Metro people were doing stuff, setting up the, the trick-or-treat booths and all this stuff in the games, and there's a lot of work going on, and I thought, man, it's going to be a flop. Like, there's going to be like 30 people that show up here. And so we went over to the IPF. That's an indoor practice facility over here. We're over there for two hours, and I walk back over here, and I walk in this room. First, I had to walk past the petting zoo. If you notice the little petting zoo that was out here, all the animals and everything, and so then I walk in here. There's probably 150 people in here, 200 people in here. Then there's 70 people in this hallway. And then the big gym, there's probably, you know, four or 500 people. Beautiful diversity of ethnicity. Beautiful diversity of class, of all those things. Just going right here among us. It's not conforming to look a certain way. 
and that we all have to do our lives exactly the same. It's conformity to Christ because we're beholding the face of Christ. We're being changed into his image. And that may look different in my family in the way that we're leading our family. That may look different in where we live and how we live and those things. And none of that is talking about going, jumping off the cliff into sin. But some people want just the gospel's not strict enough. There's, there's some really well-known evangelical powerhouse churches. Some of you guys have come from some of these. Jesus would never qualify to be an elder in some of our churches. Like he was too loose on sin. He was too easy on sin. Like, oh my gosh. Like if you think Tim Keller was too easy that he didn't come down on those homosexuals hard enough. I mean, Jesus all the time was like, hey, you're healed. Go and do no more. Walks off. What? You didn't share the gospel with her, Jesus. You didn't, you didn't go into a whole diatribe of how she needs to do this and to give the list. Why didn't you tell us, here's what that looks like. You're too easy. He wouldn't even qualify in a lot of our churches. Um, not strict enough, too easy on sin, too graceful. So guys do that. They tamper with God's word. They distort and water it down. They modify the Bible. So Paul's bringing up those things because he wants him to see that this is exactly what is happening in the Christian and in the Corinthian church. Hey, Corinthians, that's what's happening. These guys have been modifying the Bible. They've been changing it. They've been turning into either lists or they've been turning into licentiousness, just freedom. Think through the different types of distorting the gospel that we see in our day. What are some popular ways of watering down God's word to make it more palatable? Some very clear ones are just this, this huge message that's really powerful that, that your God-ordained goodness or your God-ordained role. So if I can get you thinking that God's want to just boom your life and you find all this purpose and meaning and what they've done is they're playing on the purpose-driven life and like, you know, seven billion people read the book and so they're like, oh, that purpose thing. People are looking for purpose and, and fulfillment and value. And so, hey, your God-ordained, you, you're almost there. You're almost there. Keep, Keep coming because there's this God-ordained thing blossoming in your life. If you'll just do these things, God's about to boom your business. God's about to boom your career. And it's, it's close. It's, it's, it's the crazy cousin to the prosperity gospel, but it knows that the prosperity gospel is too far off. So the message is about, it's about you inside you. You're God-ordained. Now, there is truth in that. So, there, and so you can use scriptures to talk about those things. It, it, it's just changing and modifying the gospel a little bit. Think through those. Do you see the danger and the lure for, for pastors, preachers, church leaders in possibly misusing God's word in order to be successful in the standards versus saying, hey, spirit, would you come? Would you, would you breathe on this? So Paul says, I'm, we're renouncing those three things. We're going to hold to this one thing. He says, um, we renounce disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves in front of God. God knows our hearts. You guys have seen our lives. You guys have seen the message that we brought to you. That message has changed you. It's changing you. I know that you're tending to lose heart. Go back to the message. Go back to the Christ and the cross that we preach to you. He's saying that's a manifestation of truth. And then he goes into, in verses 3 and 4, Satan's all-consuming goal. He, he reveals, just quickly in here, that, that Satan wants to blind all unbelievers. So look in verse 4 there. In their case, um, the, the God of this world, talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory 
of Christ. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Just know that when he's talking about the God of this world, he's talking about Satan. It does not mean, though, that, that Satan has ultimate power over people, that God's just like kind of frustrated over in the corner like, man, that big bully, he just, I just wish I could affect people. I, just Satan's so smart and so conniving and so, and I just can't have any influence. That's not what he's saying there. He's not saying that Satan um, has ultimate ruling power and control. Um, also, Paul's not saying that, that, that as humans, we're merely innocent vessels. You're not just a neutral vessel, okay, um, who have no say-so. Wanting to do good, but Satan controls them. That, that's not what that's saying. Because in John 3, 19, it says, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So your heart is depraved in sin, and you sin because of that. Satan, you've got the three levels is Satan and demons trying to tempt you. The fallen world that has been affected by sin, right? All the fallen world, all, all the things that we kind of, as the Christian culture, we kind of hate and like, those are evils out there in the world. That, that's Satan's plan. He wants us to be frustrated. He wants to keep unbelievers living in those type of thinking. So you've got Satan and demons. You've got the second level, just the, the fallen world affected by sin, corrupted by sin. And then you've got you, your own heart. Your own heart desires to do things that are opposed to God's will, right? And so that's how Satan is doing that. So men have loved darkness even though light has come into the world. So what is Paul building towards here? Why is Paul and his crew saying that they've resolved to do these things? Why is Paul not disheartened by the power of Satan, his schemes, and his power? One simple thing that gets into in verse 6. The all-surpassing glory of of Christ, the all-surpassing glory of an all-sufficient Jesus. So notice in verse 5 and 6, for we, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts. And what is shown in our hearts? To give, so God's giving something, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So some, some big phrases, and you could spend weeks looking at these phrases. Um, so, so notice this. Paul goes back to Genesis 1. Hey, you all know this story that in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. And so God created light out of darkness. Um, the word is ex nihilo in Hebrew, um, and it just means that out of nothing, God created something out of nothing. No elements floating around that God had to put things together. No elements, no atoms. So, so think about that for a while. No, no molecules, no atoms. Out of nothing, he creates. Ex nihilo. So Paul's taking that and going, so out of darkness, God brought forth light. I'm comparing that and saying the same way that I just talked to you guys about Moses, light was shining on Moses' face, and he would veil his face, and then after some time, um, the, 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 the glory was diminishing, the light was diminishing, it wasn't permanent. We needed a light that wasn't going to fade away. We needed a permanent light, that the new covenant light that comes in Jesus. And this light has shown, and what did Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 say? I'm going to write my law on your hearts. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. The light has shown, no longer like the old that would fade away with Moses, now it's Christ has shown in our hearts and changed us, transformed us. And what is it that has shown? 
the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So we don't know a lot about glory. So I have some slides here. So, so you know, I mean, probably for you, most of you guys, Lady Gaga, uh, On the Edge of Glory, that's probably your theme song for glory. So when you think about um, God's glory, most of you are thinking about Lady Gaga. That's wrong, church. You're bad people. Uh, if I had a $100 bill and I just had it um, wadded up, and so I, I took a $100 bill out and I wadded it up and I dropped it outside and I, I accidentally stomped on it and it was kind of muddy and wet, then would you just pick it up and throw it away? No, because why? Even though we've done harm to it, even though it was our fault that it got damaged, the value, the intrinsic worth of that $100 bill is still worth $100, right? Even though it looks different and distorted and damaged because of us, it never changed. It's actually not diminished the value of the currency is still the same. So the glory of Christ, when we talk about glory, um, we read in the Bible all these places um, that, that talk about God's glory. So there's over 1,700 verses that speak about God's glory, God's fame name, um, worship going towards God. So if you want to look at that, the exaltation of God, the exaltation of his name, go do a word study for like 60 days on God's glory. Go do a word study on God's name. Go do a word study on the fame of God spreading, exaltation, worship. Go do a study on those. Um, when we talk about God's glory, it comes up in the Bible as those things. Hebrew, the glory was, um, it's a word meaning something of weight, something of substance. We're a culture that's not amazed by substance. We're amazed by what's trendy and eight seconds, show me something new. Eight seconds, show me something new. Eight seconds, show me something new. Eight seconds, show me. We're very diverted. We're very um, disillusioned in being diverted. Where we keep doing, going around the cul-de-sac thinking that keeping on finding new stuff every eight seconds, we're finally going to find something meaningful. No, no, no. We need something of substance. We need something of intrinsic worth and value. And so it speaks of something worthy of admiring. It also speaks of brightness and brilliance. So it speaks of something that's bright and shiny. It speaks of something weighty and powerful. So if you've ever been outside when in like a, a horrible, powerful thunderstorm, when it's like the thunderstorm that's shaking, it's like you can feel the building shaking, like greater than that, coming from one center. Just, just think of something that's so earth-shattering, so powerful, like that's what glory is speaking of. Um, so even, even like with our church's mission statement, we end up by saying, we do these things, exalting, enjoying the supremacy of Christ in all things, equipping the saints, extending the gospel by reproducing disciples and churches. Why? For the glory of God. All of that for the glory of God. So something that's bright and brilliant, um, something of weightiness, something that at the center with light and heat that radiates outward. Um, there's also this difference in, in glory about something that has objective glory and then our subjective experience of glory. So think of the sun. It's, it's got elements of glory, right? It's, got, it's not God's glory. Um, God's glory is seen through his brilliance of creating a sun that sustains us all, right? But, but it has elements of glory, you could say. And so it's the object that has glory in itself. We feel it and we see it. That's our experience of it. And like the $100 bill, if I close my eyes or put on shades and it diminishes the brightness of it, does it did it ever take away from its objective worth? No. It, I've done things to diminish that or change that, modify that. So there's, there's difference between something having glory 
and holding glory and then our subjective experience that, that would cause us to be halted. Jonathan Edwards said this. Um, here's, I may be on the slide there. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. When those that see it, when they delight in it, when they enjoy it, when they pleasure in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. So now go, let's, let's take that, Jonathan Edwards understanding, and go back to 3.18. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed little by little. He's more glorified when we're not only just seeing it, but we're being changed. We're entering into his glory. We're experiencing it. We're enjoying it. We're being captivated by his glory. John Owen said this, the summation of all the divine perfections. If we were to uh, tally up all God's divine perfections, all of his nature, and, and you brought the summation, that is God's glory. When you make a summary of that, that's one guy said God's godness on display. God showing off his godness. Um, God in all his goodness and glory. Um, the Westminster Catechism asked this, um, that was a, for centuries, it's been a, a clarifier of Christian orthodoxy. So you can look up the Westminster Catechism. Um, this, what is the chief end of man? Number one question, what's the chief end of man? What are we all looking for? What are we supposed to be doing? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So when you think through that, um, does that characterize your Christianity? Are you living for his glory? Maybe you're going, I'm just, just trying to keep it all together. I'm, I'm just trying hard to be a good person. I'm trying to do the... That's not how you get there. It's going to lead to frustration and burnout. It's going to lead to leaving. It's going to lead to horrible relationships. That's not what we do. We're, we're beholding the glory of the Lord. That's not the gospel. It's religion. That's legalism. It will lead to bad places. We're a city brimming with religious syncretism, versions of Jesus that have been added to, uh, and, and relativism, just theistic moral relativism. Neither saves, neither exalts. So look at the Old Testament's uh, version of this. There's some verses that have um, some, some pictures. Like I said, there's tons, 1,700 scriptures about this. But it just begins with his purpose. The heavens... They declare the glory of God. Isaiah 43, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Do you realize you, you were created for his glory? Hitler created for his glory. The guy who got drunk and crashed into Jamie's brother, killed him, 16 years old, life over created for his glory. God will use everything good, everything bad. One day we will see all of that happen for your glory. It wasn't about us. We get the ripple effect good of experiencing and entering into your glory. Not unto us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. 
Notice Exodus 24. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord, going way back, right, was like a devouring fire on top. So the, the writers just said, I, I don't even know what to call it. I just like, up there on the mountain, it's like, it's like a devouring fire. That's, that's all I have words for. Exodus 33, Moses said, please show me your glory. So now when we look at that, we think about tying this in with the surpassing glory of the old covenant to the radiant glory of Christ. What we saw in 2 Corinthians 3 was um, that the ministry of the Spirit will have even more glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the old covenant, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. What once had glory has had now no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses. That's what we looked at while the old covenant is not what we're under any longer. Because something that is permanent, much more, well, what is permanent will have glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. Everything that we do should be for the glory of God, whether you eat or drink, whether you have steak or you're plant-based, you do both for the glory of God. Whether you have a glass of wine or have a glass of water, you do all for the glory of God. Whether you um, lead your family this way or lead your family that way, you do all for the glory of God. And God's given us freedom, not to go sin, but freedom to enjoy and do it all for the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. So if you want a new memory verse, just not even the whole verse, but if we were to just take a week and just repeat that, ponder that, ask to see, ask to understand that. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Makes you wonder, why would people have to modify this message? Why is he not enough? What is it about our hearts that we would be crowds of people that saying, you know, that I kind of know that stuff. That's just not enough anymore. Here, here's what the reason for that. Look at the connecting piece of glory. Romans 3.23. It clarifies our single separation point between God and man. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It was all about God's glory. All through time. And yet he says, and you failed miserably. You've sinned. You're not treating me as though I have glory. You're not treating me as though I am the one glorious thing that all eternity will be encompassed in. You're not treating me as God. We don't give God the glory do his name. We're glory thieves. So, so turn it to yourself now. What gets glory from your heart instead of God? What steals glory from God at the inner heart level? Anyone love feeling really good about themselves? And I'm talking about like baby good, like you know, like little baby good, like, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I'm talking about when you begin to really think about, I really want this. I want people to think this of me. I want people to notice this. Anyone love feeling beautiful? Guys, girls, anyone love feeling beautiful? Anyone love feeling admired? Anyone love feeling powerful and respected? Anyone love feeling smart and intelligent and brilliant? 
Love feeling that that pride swell up when people notice something about you and it impresses other people. Anyone love sex? Anyone love being in control? Anyone love just autonomy? Love security that money brings? Love your life trajectory that that money's going to deliver one day? We love trivial entertainment or cars or houses or vacation. What gets glory from your heart? What, what steals glory from God? In John 17, Jesus shows us a connection between Romans 3.23, all of sin. You're falling short of the glory of God living for that. In, Romans 17, in John 17, he shows us a connection. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes ahead and said, Father, heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. So 3,000 years, 4,000 years, 5,000, whatever your creation account allows for up to this point in time. And Jesus says, the hour has come, Father. Three or 4,000 years, Old Testament times, 33 years, Jesus' life, lived out this righteousness. The hour has come, Father. He's all alone. It's not been easy. The hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So don't miss the connection. The father glorifying the son, the son will glorify the father as they give eternal life. So this connection of eternal life, this is eternal life that they may know you the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is eternal life. Heaven is not the goal. Justification is just a means to get you in the presence of the glory of the Lord, to get you in God himself. Sanctification, justification, getting saved, heaven, they're all a means to get you face-to-face with God himself. The greatest thing that we could give them, Father, glorify me that way to where they would be face-to-face with you again. Father, here's what I desire. Notice what he goes on to say. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So you've got to see the connection between glorifying the Son, glorifying the Father, giving eternal life, and eternal life defined as intimacy and union with Christ. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I lived out the complete righteousness. I lived out the old covenant's intent. And now I'm about to die on the cross. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before you'd created the world. I had the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Me and you face to face. And we go back to 318 beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed. Jesus saying, Father, glorify me. And the connection between all of sin falls short of glorifying the Lord, falls short of the glory of God. They need the cross, Father. Glorify me. Glorify me. And he's talking about the beauty and the glory of the cross. Here we all stand, Romans 3-ing it up, and Jesus saying, Their answer for that is the cross. In that, we get you. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. 
You see it on the screen there. Let us rejoice. I'm sorry. Um, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white with palm branches, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And so all those things that Jesus talked about and then the things that are still yet to come, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, when the Son of Man appears, then all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And we want to know the details and Jesus said, I'm not giving you the details. I'm coming in all my glory. And that, that, that's tomorrow. That's next week. We, we don't know when the time on that. That's future. The stuff he was talking about in John 17, that was past. And now he's going, this is what's future. So we see at the end in Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God. Again, tying in with 2 Corinthians 3, no need for a temple. No need to go by all those Old Testament covenants. It, the temple's gone. There's no more sacrifices. None of those things matter. Those things were all fulfilled by Christ. No need for a temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of the sun or moon to shine. Because why? The light of the gospel has shone in our hearts. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb, and its lamp is the Lamb. So, finishing up, just looking back at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 6. Let light shine out of darkness. It has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His greatest gift that he could give us is himself. What gets glory from your heart? What is stealing glory from God in your life? I hope that you've seen glimpses of glory this morning, more light, more understanding about this. The danger in Tulsa, with all of our backgrounds, is this syncretism, a blending of, of some truth and some falsehood to come up with a new version. But now that new version is not the true version. We need the true Christ. So if you're lost and you're an unbeliever, you need this true version of Christ. You need to ask for sight, to ask for more light. You need to ask for forgiveness, for, for your sins to be forgiven, for atonement of sin, to ask for repentance, the ability to turn from sin. If you've been going through the motions as a believer, your heart's grown cold, tempted to lose heart, slow down, go to him. He already knows where you're at. He knows what you've been in. He knows what you've been walking through. Slow down. Go and behold. Ask for him to give more light, more captivation in himself. Think through that as you need to respond. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to respond this morning, and then we'll go into the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm.